This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. This is Andy Wilson along with co-host Dane Clark. How's it going, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you? I'm well. And Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, hey, Andrew. Today, we're joined by Lawrence Gowan. Multi-platinum Juno award-winning artist Lawrence Gowan has been delivering the hits for decades. Now a lead singer in the legendary rock band Styx and keyboardist, performing, writing, playing keyboards with the band since 1999. Gowan saw great success in his early days as a solo act with the release of notable hits, Moonlight Desire, Strange Animal, Dancing on My Ground, and the platinum hit A Criminal Mind, all of which have received the prestigious classic status joining the ranks of Neil Young, Brian Adams, and more. Please welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, Lawrence Gowan. Welcome, Lawrence. Hello, Andy. Hello, Dane. Hello, Hugh. Hello. Hey, Lawrence. We're so glad you're here. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be there, even though I'm on the other side of the border. Well, at least we can see you here. I just wanted to say that, uh, first off, that I did see Sticks uh, four or five summers ago in Indianapolis and it's you guys were fantastic everybody in the band's just a killer player you were fantastic and if anybody hasn't seen the you know and you've been in sticks for 20 years now but those of you who have maybe not seen the new sticks uh check out gone 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 live on YouTube it's killer and it looks like it was filmed in a couple of different places or something but however it was put together that's exactly what the band sounds like live it's fantastic. You got to go see these guys. No question. I, I always, I always joke before you kick off, uh, Dane. I'm, I always, it's not really a joke necessarily, but uh, having worked on concerts in the promotion business for over twenty years, I always joke and say I'm always working on either an Ario Speedwagon show or a Stick show somewhere, <laughs> and that's a compliment. So you guys, you guys are hardworking. You know, I love working with you guys, but I, I will echo Dane that, uh, you know, always a pleasure to see you guys. Super pro and super great live. Let's go back to the beginning. At 19 years old, you graduated with a degree in classical piano performance from the Royal Conservatory of Music in Toronto. Man, that's quite an achievement for a person that's not even 20 years old. Let's just start and say that. So, uh, wow. Can you tell us how you first got interested in playing the piano and in music in general? and lead us up to getting that degree and on to playing into your first band. Sure. Well, you know, like, like most musicians of our vintage, and, and I would say that Hugh would probably concur with this, uh, you know, when, when, when we saw the Beatles come on Ed Sullivan, that was the beginning of the world. That's where the world began. And, you know, suddenly the, the notion of maybe I don't have to work at IBM like my dad, <laughs> that kind of kicked in. And I wanted to be a musician badly. And, you know, you know, you go through, learning in little stages, but 
by the time we got into the into the 1970s, and when I particularly heard the Yes album, Close to the Edge, and saw Rick Wakeman uh, and the the kind the level of playing that he had, I realized I, I better. This is <laughs> the, the level of, of musicianship is elevating so fast so rapidly that uh, I better kind of take these uh, piano lessons more seriously. So I went to the Royal Conservatory and went through the, all, all the courses there. And then, uh, if I can harken back to Wakeman one more time, the fact that he wore a cape and yet still could play the keyboards meant that you could be both a superhero and a musician. So I thought, wow, that's definitely for me. And I saw you do that. <laughs> yeah, I know you did. <laughs> and I saw you do many things here. Hugh, Hugh used to play in a band, the Ian Thomas band, and I would go see Hugh uh, play quite often. And he had a fantastic, uh, he had a tremendous keyboards rig right there. But then what, what blew my mind was on the first night I met him, I met him basically as a keyboard player. I didn't know about the artwork that he uh, that he's famous for or was becoming more and more famous for. He just They just released uh, A Farewell to Kings. And it was weird because on the day that I met Hugh, <clears throat> I've told this many times to Hugh, but he's got to listen to it again. I happened to see that album cover in a record store. And, and I thought, this is one of the greatest covers I've ever seen. And when that night when I met him after the Ian Thomas show, and he said, I said, have you seen he, he told me he did album covers. And I just happened to say, have you seen the one for A Farewell to Kings? It's astounding. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, he goes, yeah I, I did that. And I thought... Oh, what, what a goof this guy is. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this uh, new project that you just came, uh, came out with on this, uh, for this Christmas song. It's called Can You Make It Feel Like Christmas? And you right. recorded it with a band from Toronto, right? Alternative rock band called Stuck on Planet Earth. Tell us about that. So, okay. So, they're, they're the publishing company uh, that have all my, my solo songs are, are called Anthem. <laughs> Who knows the history of that company because they were Anthem. Anthem bought Anthem. Okay, so they, they, they basically took the name as well. They're a very large publishing company. They've got, believe it or not, over half a billion dollars worth of songs of artists from around the world. Uh, anyway, they called in, in late October and said, we have this power trio called Stuck on Planet Earth. And I said, where are they from? They said, Toronto. And when you say power trio in Toronto, those are two good things to put together. There's a very good, there's a history of that mm -hmm. going well from this city. So I, I went and looked at a couple of their um, YouTube clips and they, they'd had some, some success on Billboard actually this earlier this year, but like everyone else, they had shut down. They're looking for projects. So they said, we want this for a Christmas show, something to do with something around a Christmas theme. So I thought about it for a couple of days and thought, well, if there is ever a good time to write a Christmas song, it would be 2020, you know, and something that was kind of feel good. And, uh, it, but yet acknowledge the challenges that everyone's had to face this year and, uh, and somehow, you know, piece those two things together and make, and, and make it a good vibe. And uh, I sent the demo to those guys and said, if you want to do this, give me a call back in an hour. If you don't call me back, it's no, nothing personal. Uh, just, you know, just stay six feet away forever. And uh, they, 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 called, <laughs> they called back and said, yeah, we really want to do this. So we put it out and uh, it's, uh, it's got a good reaction from people so far. Great track, man. It's good sound. Very cool. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, you heard it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, and suitably Beatlesque in spots, which I, I love. Oh, yeah. Always good. Always I, good. I mean, yes, the, the, the drum groove of the, of, the, of the chorus is literally ticket to ride. 
Not that we noticed. We didn't notice. Mm-hmm. No, we notice. no I, it's, I, I don't mind. I don't mind those references at all. Yeah, if you're going to steal I, from something, that's the that's the that's the well to dip from for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right? That's and that's that's just a killer groove anyway, and it it, it fit with this song. And uh, yeah, so there you have it. So I have a question for you because as we're talking, and this plays back in audio, but we're behind you is a jukebox. I'm fascinated with jukeboxes, and I know Dane is too. So I got to ask some questions. What songs are in the jukebox behind you? Right now, there are 24 Christmas classics in the jukebox. Okay, all right, nice. Every December, I change them. This is it was my wife's ju- jukebox growing up. It was in her family. Oh her wow! Dad, her dad acquired it from uh, you know he came back from the Second World War. These were built in 1946. Actually, Hugh, they, these were all built really close to where you were in St. Catharines in, in that area. These were built in Tonawanda, New York. Is that right? Okay. I, I thought it was one of those remakes, like, you know, was, was yeah. newer. It's, it's a 1946 Wurlitzer 1015 bubbler, if you remember that. It has a string of bubbles that go around the arc, right? Okay. And, yeah. and uh, this, was, this was the, and they, they weigh over 300 pounds. So this is the oh, original iPod. Uh, right, and, sure. <laughs> they really, they really reduced them remarkably. But right now, it's full of twenty-four Christmas songs, and uh, you know, every, mostly Bing Crosby, Elvis, and uh, Blue Christmas. Well, oh, yeah, seventy-eights. He said seventy-eights, baby. <laughs> Does it play just seventy-eights then? Yeah, only 70, seventy-eight RPM. Oh wow! How do you find those Christmas records? Wow, on eBay. It's a, it's okay. amazing when, I, when we got when I got the jukebox restored because it was in terrible shape. But I got it restored in uh, Albany, New York, is a, a place there called National Jukebox. Did the restoring. Um, he, he, I said, "Where can I find some?" He just said, "Go on eBay and, and start looking around." And I'd done that, and I looked for. I got like for example, Leroy Anderson's Sleigh Ride. I finally found a '78 of it. That's one of my favorite pieces, and it's uh, but it came from from Australia. You really can't, you, you actually have to live with the, without the fact that you can't find Bert Kemfort or, or Montovani on, uh, on 78. That's, that's sort of a sad omission. It's, it's very sad, isn't it? It is very, very sad. You know, the other thing actually, Hugh, is some of my favorite songs, they just break the gap between 78 RPM and 45s. Wasn't there a period of time where they where they would release a seventy eight and a forty five just Absolutely. for a year yes. or two? Yeah. Yes, there was from like nineteen fifty eight to sixty, mm-hmm. roughly fifty eight to sixty. They they were they'd come out both on seventy eight and forty five. But for example, I, I, I the other day I looked up <laughs> Burr Lives <laughs> have a holly jolly Christmas. It's only on forty five. I can't even play it. Mm. Yeah, that would have been that came out in the sixties for sure, like yeah. sixty two or three. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna have to try to have a holly jolly Christmas without it. It's going to be tough. That is a classic. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, just to, to move forward uh, from your early days when you were playing, I just was kind of interested in how your sonically, how your records started changing sounds. And the one that really caught my ear at, that I, I wasn't aware of was the one that, uh, but you can call me Larry, which is really kind of uh, a more Americana yeah. organic kind of sounding record um which also features uh john sebastian was involved in it in yeah. some part he's a friend of mine and really? he was on the record that i did this year called uh, uh songs from isolation oh, thank and uh yeah so he, he's a buddy of mine so i just i got interested right away and listened listened through that record and specifically 
like Souls Road was my favorite cut. It's the first cut. Thank you. Great one to put on there first. Um, fantastic. Uh, the song that had the B3 in When There's Time for Love. Yep. Yeah. Great. And the fiddle song, uh, Dancing, it, yeah, Dancing on My Own. My, yeah, yeah, so that's a way big departure from your earlier stuff. Yeah. Um, tell me how that evolved. Certainly. First of all, thanks a lot for asking that question because that's not this is this is turning into a bunch of things I've wanted to talk about but never get a chance to. Sure. The 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 1980s kind of I I kind of had this t- television persona in Canada, right? We, you know, like a, a video star kind of thing. Um and, and you know that by the end of the 1980s, there was definitely this kind of, uh, you know, remember the big Millie Vanilli scandal? Oh, <laughs> there yes. Was, there was suddenly this this in, incredible um, uh, suspicion about any musician that, 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 that leaned on videos a lot for their for their career. And as a result, you know, grunge came in and, and all those 80s acts just kind of overnight disappeared. Many of sure. them have, have be reemerged over the last 20 years because a lot of them were really legit and really great. But there was definitely this, this horrible uh, sense of, uh, you know, one incredibly raised eyebrow when it came to anything in the 80s once we crossed over into the 90s. And for myself, in order to kind of distance myself from myself <laughs> of sure. the 1980s, one name the persona guy. of the 80s, yeah. Yeah, and by the way, I was known simply as Gala, just the one right. name guy, right? So, hence the name of the record. You can call me Larry. Right, exactly. So, to 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 make a com- complete break from the 1980s, I thought the first thing is I'm not going to write these songs on piano or keyboards because I, I, I rediscovered kind of the joy of just acoustic guitar and and coming up with a simple song and then. Putting putting all the all the uh, all the arrangement around it and doing whatever you need to do to to sure. enhance it. At the same time, the guy that I worked with on my '80s records, Jerry Murata, a great, great drummer. drummer from Peter Gabriel, he had transitioned into working with the Indigo Girls, and I went to a couple sure. of his shows with them. And I thought, wow, Jerry's doing this whole thing that's based on acoustic guitar. And as a result, I asked him to to produce the album, and. Simultaneous with that, I started working more with Eddie Schwartz, who is a great songwriter. You know, he wrote Hit Luther Beshoff and Pat Benatar. And he, as a writer, worked a lot on acoustic guitar. So I found myself gravitating toward that. And once the record was done, I realized I love the fact that this doesn't sound anything like what I did in the 1980s. It's a fresh exactly. start. And so as, a, as kind of a joke, I thought, well, I'll use my full name. So it, became, it was Lawrence Gowan, but you can call me Larry. And I remember Hugh... You weren't crazy about that title. <laughs> Do you remember that? Sort of. You weren't crazy. You thought it, you thought it was a little too um, a, a little too throwaway, kind of. You know, you thought it was a little, a little too throwaway and, and didn't have the kind of the, the pomp and circumstance of the stuff that had done up until that point. But you did throw in and you did work on the cover uh, for that record as well. Demo took a great shot in front of a, um, a very kind of, famous, in a fa- kind of famous graveyard here in Toronto. And in some ways, that that kind of mausoleum behind me was a way of saying goodbye to my my 1980s persona and embracing that. Sure. Long answer, Dane. I'm sorry, but I'm so wow. happy that you brought that album up. Thank you. Oh, that's no, fantastic. I mean, people that haven't heard that need to listen. Um, like I said, that's 
you know, that's more in the genre, this kind of stuff that I do. And it's, man, it's just the songwriting. And plus, your bridges and stuff are really great. Yeah. Thanks. Always. Mm -hmm. I got to ask you about one more Americana, just little thing. Sure. You played with Ronnie Hawkins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I wanted to bring that up too. That, wow, man. So that, yeah, I had that written down. I'm like, ask him about the Massey Hall, Ronnie Hawkins 60th birthday. Man, <laughs> this, this interview is making my day. I'm telling you, you're asking stuff that I don't normally get to talk. Normally, I just got to talk about all what, what sticks are up to, you know, and I, I love talking about that. But I mean, that that's a whole section of, of my life. But what you're bringing up sure. now is really great. In the, I, I, this going to sound like a name dropping like crazy here, but here we go. When I came back from England after making my second album, Strange Animal, when I, I made that at Ringo Starr's home, Tittner's Park, where John Lennon recorded Imagine, because it was Imagine. John's house yeah. before Ringo. When I came back, CBS Records here in Canada, they, they really loved the record. But they said, because of that, we're not going to put it out this year. We're going to put it out in January of 1985. And this was like, this was like July in 84. And they said, January 85, we'll put it up. And I thought, why so long? I said, we want to wow. set it up properly. And we want you to do a couple of videos. And, and, and there are all kinds of reasons. I said, okay. But I was broke. So I, luckily, my truck lights in PA were being used by Ronnie Hawkins. <clears throat> uh <-huh. laughs> and, my, and the sound engineer, Bob Schindle, worked with him. And Stan Celeste, who was a phenomenal piano player, um, playing 50s rock, uh, he uh, was under the weather, and they needed somebody quick. So I got recruited. And at the very first sound check on the first day, I played some Little Richard. And Ronnie, I hadn't even met him. You know, he comes in during wow. the sound check, and he went, son, that Little Richard, some of my favorite stuff ever. You want to do some of that in the show? I'm trying to do an Arkansas accent, but sorry. Anyway. Not bad. Not but bad. <laughs> I, I said, uh, I said, sure. So, you know, I did a little Richard medley. And even that night, it was at the Aurelia Opera House. You, yeah. When he's introducing the band, Steve Hogg was on bass, by the way. Yeah. When he's introducing the band. The boy should know Steve was in the band I played with. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Steve Hogg played in Ian Thomas. Okay. With you. And. As introduced to Ben, he comes around to me. I just finished doing the little Richard thing. And he goes, oh, man, it didn't know my name. <laughs> oh, yeah, said, guys. Said, and on, on the piano is, he goes, uh, I, I just met this fellow today. I, what's your name? <laughs> 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 How Ronnie is that? So I, yeah, Barry, it's, yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, Larry, Larry Gowan. He goes, Larry. Larry's a weird name, I guess, for some people. He goes, he goes, no, Lawrence on the piano, Sir Lawrence, Sir Lawrence, <laughs> Sir Lawrence. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. That's fabulous. That's great. I, I played with him for those six months, and here's here's kind six of, months. Of, oh wow, six months from from August until January. Well, one, two, how many months is that? Five. Um, from August till January of eighty five. August eighty four. We played with. Uh, first of all, we played some tremendous places and, and had a ton of fun. But the most memorable one was we did a week at the Royal York Imperial, Imperial Room with Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley was on the show as well. Oh, cool. And after, oh, wow. after the first night, Ronnie had some heart palpitations, but his manager didn't want to cancel the week. So he made it Bo Diddley, 
and this guy that nobody heard of, Sir Lawrence, doing Little Richard. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Lawrence. So you were second bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sir Lawrence. For a week. I'm friends with his family now. His family come up to a lot of stick shows. And That's awesome. Pictures, That's you know, killer. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very fond of the phrase, you know, <laughs> probably don't know this, but I do. In fact, I do know Diddley. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> uh, but you know, yeah. that can be a great album. Sir Lawrence knows <laughs> Diddley. Knows Diddley. Right. He does, he does it. I guess great, great pictures of him. And what a great guy to, to play on stage with for a week. Just phenomenal entertainer. And uh, by January of 85, they put out a strange, well, they put out a criminal mind and I was playing with Ronnie at this, uh, car uh, auto show in Montreal and the video was out and after the very first set there were a bunch of people on stage and as it came off they asked me are you you look like that guy who does the criminal song and uh, I said yeah it's me and suddenly all these pamphlets from like the auto show came up and they wanted autographs and Ronnie goes by me <laughs> on the stage stops me on the show and goes oh you, you played your last show with me son <laughs> <laughs> and it was until 1995 which you brought up his his 60th birthday uh in 1995 they booked a night at massey hall and it was carl perkins jerry lee lewis uh the band okay mm. uh -huh. the band uh, and jeff healy and myself oh, actually right. jeff healy and i actually got on the bill full name lawrence Gale. and I, I did uh, some Little Richard and I did a, a, an original song, actually, When There's Time for Love, that show, and got to play like a dueling piano thing with little with um, with uh, Jerry Lee Lewis in, in, in a little bit of way in the show because we had this rock orchestra. Wow. And it was a, in, an incredible night. And oh, I, think, I think it's the only gold album that, that Ronnie had in his whole career, but what a great way to get there. Yeah, sure. right. No well, question. You mentioned orchestra. I, I just today saw the Cleveland Youth Orchestra and you doing Criminal Mind. That was very cool. Yeah. I, wasn't that great? That, that, that youth orchestra is so well. The, the conductor, Eliza Grossman, what she she's one of these phenomenal music teachers, I guess you'd call it, but almost like a mentor that, that brings young people to, to such a level of, of competence really quick thing we, we did a full we did a whole dvd of that you it was it sticks in the clear and the contemporary youth orchestra and we recorded in cleveland yeah very cool yeah well i just isolated that song in my crash course on sir lawrence today uh, <laughs> <laughs> i love it no i've known you all my life but yeah. today proved to me how in many instances i don't know mm. you just as I presume you don't really know me, um, Sir Hugh. Maybe he. Maybe he do. Maybe he do. Maybe he do know Hugh. He do. Who do know Diddley? He do know Hugh. But he do know Hugh. That's great. Now, if you don't mind, Lawrence, you brought up that um, you recorded at Startling Studios, yeah. and that was the Strange Animal album, correct? Yeah. Um, how how did you end up recording there? I, that was in my notes too, and you brought it up recently. In, in the nineteen eighties, uh, a producer who really typified the, the sound of that of that era was a guy named David Tickle. He had done the first Split Ends album, which I loved. It was very minimalist, minimal. You know, the minimalistic uh, recording approach had had come in big. You know, and for myself, I needed someone like that that had that kind of a that kind of a, an approach. 
because the 1980s sound, I wanted to morph into that at that time. So David Tickle had worked at Ringo's when Ringo was living in America. He had worked in the studio because Startling Studios had recorded Judas Priest and a Def Leppard record was made there. But Ringo moved back to England in, I believe, 82 or 83 or 84, somewhere around there. And he wanted to revive the studio again and bring it up to scratch. And Dave said, well, I've got this Canadian artist that I want to record. Can I bring him here? And Ringo's like, you know, no bloody Canadians. I don't know what he was like. (laughs) Obviously, he said, okay. And I showed up and it was with Peter Gabriel's backing band. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Tony Levin, Jerry Murata, David Rhodes, uh, and another fellow named Chris Jarrett on guitar. And the five of us made the album. Ringo was living there the whole time. The studio was hooked onto the kitchen, much the same as if I turn this, just show you, see that, that door there, that's about how uh-huh. far away the studio is from the kitchen door. So we, oh, wow. we would hear Ringo in there and he'd come through, you know, occasionally and, and make comment, great comments on the songs, et cetera. But the piano was like that far away. And it's, that's right where John had recorded Imagine. So wow. I'm sitting there yeah. thinking, wow. you know, I can hear Ringo Starr on the other side of that door and on the days when i had to play the songs for the first time they play them for the band say okay here's how this one goes you know we play them a demo but then i'd play it break it down to just the piano i'd be thinking you know ringo in his life he's heard you know you know i've got a new song today it goes like yes hey jude <laughs> right and i'm sitting here going like a criminal mind is all <laughs> <laughs> what is he thinking? <laughs> Apparently, he quite liked him. He, he particular there's a, the opening track on that album is a song called Cosmetics, and it's uh, kind of a song about fashion models and stuff. And it's, it's got a real uh, Latin groove to it. He mentioned many times that he per- liked that song the most, and he said, you know, one time he said, every time you saw that one, we start dancing around in the kitchen. So that's why I made it the lead off track on that record. Cause I thought if he ever gets this record and listens to one song and then goes there, I've done it. At least it'll be the one that he commented on. Like, right. Yeah, there you go. So I need to ask is, did you not say that you went into the coat closet at one point and there was a drum skin with the word Beatles on the, on the skin? Unfortunately, we're on radio because I could, I could show you that photo. Um, I asked Ringo, he had a, an assistant named Mike O'Donnell and I didn't want to, Ringo, at that period in his life, I didn't want to over, you know, I didn't want to, to to eat up his entire, my few moments with him by just, you know, going on about the Beatles. Instead, we basically talked about just the most general of things, you know, uh, in the little chats we had. A lot was about his, his he had a killer dog on the property named Leo. <laughs> so sometimes we just talked about the dog and, and the album at hand. But one day I, 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 said to him, I, I said to him, Timber, I, I saw your, a bunch of your drum kits out in the, um, we, we called it the, uh, the temple. It's actually, if you've seen the album cover of them all, uh, the, there was an album they did, they called it Hey Jude, but it was all, all the songs that yeah. were um, singles that were never released on albums. And the right. four of them are standing in front of that door. Well, I have a great picture in front of that door because we used that room for the drum echo, for Jerry's drums. Uh, for, as an ambient root space, one day I said, "I just I thought I would see your drum kit set up with the with the drum head." He goes, "He goes, oh yeah, they're in there." And I turned to Mike and I said, "I said, well, is is the drum head here?" Like the and he goes, "Yeah." 
He said, where is it? Uh, Rich. They called him Rich. And Rich was, I think it's in the front closet. It was, it was in their, their <laughs> hall closet, like where you keep the shoes and stuff. Because, and I said, why, why is it there? He goes, oh, because to him, it's a drum head. Yeah. Was that the Ed Sullivan head? No, because okay. it's the original. It's the original. You would have loved this because when I looked at it, there was a pencil etching of a different logo that said the Beatles on it that they had erased. And then the classic logo was there that you saw in 1963. Uh, when wow. they played Ed Sullivan, when they went to America, they had a fresh one made in the States of that logo. But when I held it, uh, I, I thought, oh, like if we'd had iPhones and things like that, I could have taken really up close photos, but I just have a regular photo of me holding it. Uh, which is good enough. Yeah. <laughs> good enough. Yes, exactly. Plus you have the, plus you have the story. That's a fantastic. Wow. Yeah. I read a That's great. that the Ed Sullivan drumhead did sell at auction for $2.6 million. Yeah. I can imagine. Drumhead. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. I, Crazy. I, I can imagine. Well, as, as precious as that was, I think this one would be even more so because the as first a, one, the original, the, the original, I mean, that's the drumhead that they came to that, must have come to that design because they had before it had been erased. You know, I could see it. They didn't even buy a new drum head. They didn't even bother to spend the three dollars to I think, buy it. I think I have a feeling they're very thrifty guys. I saw an interview with Paul McCartney or heard one many years ago where they asked him, you know, why did you switch to the Rickenbacker? Why did you stick stick with the Hofker for so long? He goes, I just didn't want to put out the bucks for a new one. <laughs> 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 I mean more, more musicians should think that way. Yeah. Sure. But well, we don't. Yeah. So if, if I could, 1987, Great Dirty World album. Um, you did some recording with John Anderson of Yes. He's one of my personal favorite uh, singers. Yeah. Um, how did that relationship and what was that experience like working with John? So David Tickle moved from England to Los Angeles and he wanted to make the, the follow-up record, Great Dirty World, in, in L.A. And... Uh, Quite honestly, I wanted to go back to England, but uh, but he wanted to do the record in LA, and he and he, we lined up some great players. Simultaneous to that, he had a few other mixing projects that he that he got involved with. One was the movie tra- soundtrack Legend, so Tangerine Dream were on that, and he said, "I'm doing a song today, and John Anderson's going to sing on it." I was like, "Oh God, can I come into the studio?" No, so <laughs> uh, hang it. But apparently, the, the way he told me, because I wound up having dinner with John that night, was he put Strange Animal on testing the speakers in the studio, and John came in and went, what is that? Because I like it. And he said, yeah, this is this guy I'm working with. Actually, the studio is just down the road. And John goes, I, I, I like that quite a lot. He says, well, you know, you want to go out to dinner after the show? So we did. And we kind of hit it off. And again, I didn't tell him at, right up front what a gigantic yes man it was. Instead, we talked about you know, a lot of LA things compared to England. And then we went to a baseball, <laughs> we went to see the Dodgers play. And in the car, Dave had the, um, on the way back home, he had the, the bed track to Moonlight Desires. And John just started riffing along with it. In the right there in the car, just going, and we'd, wow. the section in the song that we were going to put a guitar solo. And when he was doing that, though, I went, instead of a guitar solo, how do do that? Right. And so that's why in the middle of the song where we're a guitar solo or a synth solo or some kind of solo would go, instead it's John's voice enters in and goes, 
And then he added a stack of harmonies with it. And it was just magic. And then we finished the album and I called him one day because we were about to do the video on the Mayan pyramids in Mexico. I called him, he was in England and it was like February, late February of 87. And I, I said, um, do you want to come to Mexico and do this video? And he said, back then he said, I just spoke to my a channeler. I'd never heard what a channeler was. I know what it is now. And my channeler, and she said, someone is going to invite you to a warm climate and you should definitely go. Huh. And he said, this is that phone call. And a few days later, he and I at about 5 a.m., maybe a little earlier, were standing on two Mayan pyramids outside Mexico City as a helicopter came over the horizon and videoed us you know, miming to the song that was being blasted from the PA system down below. This was, there's no green screen, folks. It was, wow. again, one of the most unbelievable experiences of my life. I'm like, here's a guy I sang with in my bedroom singing right. to sure. about tw- 12 years ago. And now we're standing on Mayan Pyramid singing at <laughs> 4.30 in the morning with a, mm. with a helicopter, you know, shooting us from above, you know? Right. So, wow. Uh, Kind of, sounds like a sounds like a dream sequence or something. You know? I feel like I'm dreaming right now sometimes when I tell you this stuff, but that's <laughs> you can't make that's, that's incredible. But I'm curious, you know, but what, how much has artwork mattered to you? Obviously, the videos did, and you got very into the conceptualizing of standing on top of Mayan pyramids. When it came to artwork and your assessment of music as a listener and a consumer, as well as being an artist yourself, yeah. How much did that matter to you? I know, I know we did a lot of photo sessions with Demo, which were personality. It, 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 was, it was of such central importance that I remember, you know, the day that I saw this for the first time, I'm holding up the most iconic album cover ever, right? Mm-hmm. The moment yeah. I saw that, I realized this is super important. This is, this is as important as what's inside in some ways, because if this is wrong, it's not going. You're not going to get. You're not going to get to crack the thing open. This has to spark the imagination right off the bat. Oh, by the way, I guess I should say what these albums were on the radio. So the first one is Sergeant Pepper's. The next one is El- Elton John's "Goodbye Yellow Brick Road." This piece of art absolutely showed me just how otherworldly this guy is. Even just mainly because he's animated on the cover. I'd never really seen too much of that where animation was used. In, in, you know, to, to, to that degree. I dug that cover too when I saw it. I remember. Yes. Yeah. Another favorite of mine is this A Trick of the Tail, Genesis, yeah. because every, every, I, I, every picture on here is part of the story of this album. There, all these yep. characters appear in the album. And I love yep. the idea of, of albums that, that told stories, you know, within the songs. You could still personalize, but the artwork tied in with it, right? So that's that's another one. Uh, I guess you know I, I'm I'm kind of scrolling them really quickly here, but you know without and this is I don't have to make this up. Storm Thorgerson, one of my faves, you know, for for the things he came up with. Huge in, inspiration to me as well. Storm was Storm, yeah. Storm did the album cover for uh, for for Stick the first. Studio album I did with Sticks with Cyclorama. Storm Thorgerson did that cover. He he did the the most iconic Pink Floyd covers, and uh, but here you know Hughes' artwork over, over the decades 
has been at, at the center of, of that kind of an understanding of, of what of what it takes to really come up with iconic um, images, and not just not just the stuff he's done for Rush, but other covers he's done for Aerosmith and for Supertramp, and uh, you know, uh, list list goes on. Uh, well, Hugh, you'd done a, a cover for Sticks prior to Lawrence being in the band. I, I forget what record that was. Edge of the Century, maybe. Was that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with Demo on a live album. Demo Safari and I worked together on the live album, um, which was shot at the Hoover Dam, which was interesting. Um, the one before that, which which I talk about as as infrequently as I as possible, was the Hourglass. Um, that was intended originally. There was an art director at A and I was at A and M. Yep. Yeah, A and M. They were. The art director took off to work with Sting in Italy, and he kind of left me holding the bag with all due respect. We were going to have a clear bubble with actual sand that you could turn the album up and down um, and actually have sand dripping through this clear vacuum-formed bubble. And it was going to be very minimalistic. And it ended up being a photo of an hourglass. It was a bit of a yawn as I look back on it. But, you know, I'm happy to have been a part of Styx's journey. Well, I remember I remember asking you about that cover, and yeah, it was almost like what they wound up going with was was a prototype. It was just something that you'd put together as a prototype, but 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 the idea of using an actual piece of plastic bubble that would that would be a real hourglass that you could turn over that was brilliant. Your earlier point about the cover needing needing to be um, uh, representative of the contents and so on. There's also the the flippant side that which I've I've exercised a few times where you you let the tail wag the dog you do something that's unexpected um, it may still have some loose relationship to the title but the intent is that you discover later ah that that is actually kind of funny you know um, but it doesn't necessarily make it an iconic cover until the music itself becomes famous then suddenly the cover matters. It's like a logo, you know, and I think I think I think that is that is really where the where the artist the artist has to come in to it because yeah I I will in in very you know invariably I'll come up with something that, that that's far more literal to what the text is inside a, a record but but when someone like yourself takes it you you'll you'll see it from a from a completely different angle. And put something in there that eventually will become an an icon that's kind of connected to that record. So one hopes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think we'll shift gears a little bit to sticks. The the, the thing that sticks, and I've seen a lot of stick shows, having worked on a lot of them. But the, the most interesting thing about your dynamic, Lawrence, in sticks, being the keyboard player and obviously singer, but you're so dynamic. I mean, so out in front, most of the time for a piano player, keyboard player, they're off to the side or in the back. You know, sometimes they're not even wearing like a, a cool coat. They're just there. You're like, oh, they stuck them back in the corner. But you're so out in front. And it's so, I, I don't know, I've never seen any band do it that way. And it's so entertaining. I mean, is it, was that a conscious thing for you? Or is it, you know, I mean, it's, it's unlike anybody else in rock playing the keyboard it's it's all the influences that are there andy like i love freddie mercury i love elton i love i love little richard as i mentioned before i, I love mick jagger i find that when i get on some performers get on stage and they 
they they actually part of their performance is to be immobile in some ways that that actually is part of what works for them you know i mean i think if bob dylan started really moving around doing some moves and pointing at people right it right. wouldn't work no <laughs> but for myself i feel i i feel better being physically engaged in 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 the show and uh, that's led to all kinds of mishaps along the way. I think it's great. I mean, I, it's the the dynamic for those songs. I think it just it just is cool. It just really works well. Well, thank you. I, I, when I listened to Sticks Records when I was getting into the band, I just I thought, no, these are really you can you can move to these things. You know, they're 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 kind of they're enough progressive rock that it satisfies that part of me, but. They have this great pop sensibility to them and they rock as well. So it's like they cover all kind of parts of the emotional spectrum. I, I find that's and years prior to that, I, I you know, 10 years before joining, nine years before joining Sticks, I, I transitioned to that spinning keyboard thing, which is a contraption that um, was mainly so that I could, you know, physically move on stage and not not be kind of locked behind the piano. Um, actually, you know what? Bringing up Rush again, Alex Lifeson was in the, the it was a video we did together. He was on that album Lost Brotherhood, and we did a we did a video for the song Lost Brotherhood, and that's where I used the spinning piano for the first time. And he he actually commented that he goes, "You can take that thing on stage." And kind of thinking about it, I don't know. Because yeah, you're probably going to kill yourself on it. And I've come this close a number of times. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, how many has that? So um, has that ever gone wrong when you spun it? And horribly wrong. About the third show in, I learned one very valuable lesson with it. There's a lock on, on the, in the the, um, the the pipe that comes up the center of it, the center post, which is hollow, and that's where they, all of the electronics go through. Um, there's a lock on there so that when I stand on top of it, I used to constantly leap. You know, I, I use it as a catapult to jump from right. There's a lock on there that you can stop it from rotating when you go to do a, a, an asinine move like that. And about the third show in, <laughs> I forgot Ooh. to turn off, right? So I go to uh -oh. do, it's the, it's the end of the show, and I would do a run across the stage. It's like one foot on the, onto the piano stool, one foot onto the top of the piano, and then leap as far as I can and try not to maim anybody other than myself. And I forgot to turn the lock on, so the entire thing shifts around like this, just perfectly timed so that my tailbone lands on the edge oh. of the keyboard, right? Oof. The entire thing comes completely flying over and the keyboard comes shooting out of the stand and crashes into the crowd, breaking into a oh, <laughs> And I, there's no way you, you here's the, here's the trivia question. You cannot possibly get wrong. What do you think the audience's reaction was to that? It was ecstatic. Oh, they thought it was incredible. The best show they've ever seen. They yeah. want to see it every time. It's like breaking your guitar. He trashes $5,000 <laughs> keyboards every night. Larry does a Townsend. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do the rest of the night? As I said, Dan, luckily it was the last song. And I, yeah. Uh, okay, oh, it was the last song. Okay. <laughs> I missed that part. So we always like to ask, what was your first paid concert as a fan that you went to? Yeah. It would be, it was a Canadian band called the Guess Who, and it was at the, yeah. at the CNE. And uh, that's the first time I paid, I paid $5 for, for a ticket. And uh, I, I have to say, they were so good at that era. It was just after Randy Bachman had left the band. So, you, you know, you, you wondered Kurt Winter they, was they pull this off. They had Kurt Winter and Greg Lescu, two yeah. guitarists, came in. 
they were so good. For, they opened with the song Bus Rider. And in that era, they first of all, they sounded just like their records, only better. Burton Cummings sang exactly as he did on the records, only better, I, as if that wow. was possible. But it became kind of the measuring stick of, of from that point on. Anytime I saw a band that wasn't at least as good as their records live, I kind of lost them. Uh, even bands I liked, I would suddenly was like, ah, it wasn't that good. And then bands that I was kind of on the fence about, I would see them live. Uh, the, the biggest example of that was, I liked Billy Joel in the in the 70s, early 80s. I liked them. I'd never seen them live. And I, because I was on, I got signed to Columbia Records, he was on the label. And they offered me tickets. They will go to the free tickets now. And I saw him for the first time on the Nylon Curtain Tour. He blew me away so unbelievably how good yeah. he was on stage. I agree. Yeah, he's great. I, I, he's, I've never seen anybody surpass him. I, you know, he's equal to anyone I've ever seen. I would agree with that. I remember seeing him in Indianapolis. First time I saw him kind of similar type of thing, grew up listening to him, you know, love the songs, yeah. but he came out and played, um, I think it was purple haze or Foxy lady by Hendrix. And then at the time of that tour, he was playing songs like he played a Mellencamp song. Yeah. Um, I think he played hurt so good or something. But it wasn't just that he was playing those songs, but they killed it. And he killed it. And it was so good. I was like, this is insane. And that, you're right. Live completely, completely blew me away. All his records sound great to me now because I, I, I always have the image of what he does on stage makes the, make, made the songs, elevated them in my mind. So Even much. better. I think you embody, you know, you speak about that like, like you're a third person in that scenario. But you have always struck me as someone who, you know, apart from the fact that you have a phenomenal voice and an unbelievable range, seeing you playing and your range, your control, I mean, you do embody all the things that you admire in Billy Joel or these people you're talking about. Honestly, man, you're, you're superb at what you do. Oh, thanks very much. I mean, uh, uh, that's great to hear. Thank you very much. You, uh, um, back to sticks. I mean, th these are, these are the things that I guess, you know, that I tried to bring into the band, you know, it's, it's difficult when, you know, when, when any band makes a member change and especially one as momentous as that was in the, in the, in the nineties, it's, you have to, you know, the ones that are the most successful at it, the ones to my, to my estimation are the ones that bring in someone that kind of embodies the spirit of the band more than the actual tone of the band. And that's, that's something that I'm proud of over the, the two decades I've been with them now is that that to me is my contribution is that somehow the spirit of that band survived, you know, it, you know, it, that's, it's, it's very subjective whether, whether it did or not. But I remember seeing the Rolling Stones about three, maybe four years ago. And I used this as, as an example. I saw Ron Wood. He kind of went by on the, uh, he walked by on the, uh, the, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The proscenium that sticks out in front of the stage, the thrust. And he, uh, I looked up at him and I thought, God, that guy is such, he's as much part of the Rolling Stones as any of these guys. And he's the third guitarist. He's the third guy they right. had in that role. Right. Yeah. I just thought, why is it that I can completely accept him? And other times when I see bands that have bring in new people, it's difficult. It's very difficult to accept. Well, there can be all kinds of subjective reasons for that, but ultimately I think, he embodies the spirit of that band 
Uh, and I think Tommy and JY and Chuck thought that I guess I had something just in my own makeup that somehow fit in with what their thing was. I, th I would agree. I think, I think when you bring a different flavor to something, it's not just a replacement type of scenario. That's what makes the difference because if you look, there's so many bands now, like, you know, and I love Lou Graham, all those Warner songs, but Kelly Hansen, man, he is a great performer and great singer. Same thing for RNL for Journey. I mean, they're they're talented entertainers, man. Well, and it it also goes for guys that play all the instruments. I mean, I'm a guy that joined a band that was already successful 25 years ago, and you know, I I bring my own flavor, but it's still I think that I represent the spirit of the band too. Totally, and that's why that works there, just like what you do works with sticks. Yeah, that's that's it. Kelly's great. Yeah. Another great example, Dave. Uh, it can work. I mean. But the word replacement, I I always bristle at that. I can't. Yeah, well, I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, sure. No human being replaces another human being. No, 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 no. no. There are different eras to bands. Yeah. You know, Wakeman made a comment back in around like, maybe the late 80s. Rick Wakeman was uh, the article, either in Melody Maker or something I read, where they said, does it bother you when you see other keyboard players in? Yes. He went, no, not at all. Like for example, Patrick Mraz. He wasn't the first keyboard player in Yes. Exactly. Right. But his his response at the time, I thought at the time this is ludicrous, and now I know it's absolutely gospel. He said, "A hundred years from now, there's going to be a Yes, and they'll be playing these albums because this music is going to survive, right? Mm. Just like, and here's the example he gave. He said, 200 years ago, there was a London symphony that played Beethoven." And today there's a London Symphony that plays Beethoven, and all those guys are long dust, right? Yeah. But, the, yeah. Right. but we can easily argue, and I make this point in our in the stick shows, rock music, classic rock music of the is the grand musical statement of the last half of the 20th century. That's part of why the artwork is so so important, why we why we venerate it so much, why the records and why those people that made the, that music are so vitally important. You can argue that the first half of the 20th century would be, we'll call it the jazz era, although there's many permutations of that. But the last, those last 50 years, that is the rock era. That is going to go on. It absolutely yeah. is because it's an era of music. We don't stop listening to Tchaikovsky because oh, we're, we're past that 1800 crap now. You know, totally, right. totally agree. Well, and Styx is still making great music. I think that last record, the mission to me, that was the best Styx record I've heard since, maybe Paradise Theater or even before that. That's a really, really good record. Thank you very much. It, I really, I, of all my time in the band, that's the thing I'm most proud of is that album because I think we we really, we listened a lot to, we made it like we we're making a 70s record. We went to tape. We, we used all the, there were no plugins used. Uh, you know, we, we, we realized we've got to use the clunky old machines. Luckily, we found the studio or Tommy found the studio Blackbird in Nashville. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, it's the um, it's run by John McBride, you know, Christina McBride's husband, and I think Garth Brooks is involved in, was involved in putting the place together. So we used all those all the old machinery. We, we put our cell phones down. We basically pretended like that new technology didn't exist, and we wound up making a record that sounded that you could put it on next to pieces of eight and go, "Yep, that's made from in the same era." Did you write and prepare the music in the same room? Because I know in the last 15 years of Pro Tools, everybody's flying parts into each other. Hugh, there was not one bit flown in. The writing was mostly 
Most of the writing was done with Tommy, myself, and our producer, Willie Bankovich, in the same room. Sometimes I wasn't in the room. Will and Tommy wrote a lot of it on their own. I wrote one piece on my own, and uh, then Tom. Yeah, basically, three of us in the room together. I mean, one song, there's a song on that album called Radio Silence. That was, we spent a week together in, uh, actually in Santa, um, where was it? In, uh, in California, what was she? Santa Rosita or Santa, Santa Rosa, Santa Rosa, <laughs> Rosita, Santa Rosa. And uh, it was from Monday, we started the song, we finished it by Friday. It was five days working on one song. Three guys, you know, all getting frustrated together and having to butt heads against this part, that part, this lyric, that lyric. Uh, this chorus is horrible. Great way to put together a record. It really is. It's it's painful, but man, it, it pays off in the end. You can tell. That's what I think happens to a lot of bands who have success. They, it's no through no fault of their own. They do have success. They find their significant other. They have families. They end up getting busy and scheduling the record into their life. Unlike the original records that they made where the record was their life, mm. you know, getting together with their sure. musical friends to do what you're just describing was the essence of, of the, or it was the soup from which all the good stuff came. And to go back to that and to, to make sure that everybody shuts their phones off and goes to the barn, like big pink and whatever. Yeah. Shutting your phones off is the big one, right? Yeah. Turn those things off. Yeah, that nice. that, that one is that one is definitely a, a that's a, a that's a time suck in in, in such a such a way. Uh, Hugh, you, that's that's a great uh, analogy. You know, the the album when those albums were made, the album was your life, and your life was like if there was any time left for your, for a life, I guess you go and do that. Right. Right. But yeah, that's. Now, now it's of course, that's when you're hungry and young and, and still yeah. trying to put yourself out there. So that's why that the realities of life creep in. And yeah, you've got to kind of schedule yeah. the time to do that. But but I think this is where this this balancing act that we have to play with technology now is that that's really our our, our new uh, challenge is how much and how little how, how little and how much do we let in to all the things that we do as human beings. And, you know, it's been a lifesaver for, for me this year, you know, obviously because we wouldn't be able to do the, the things that we've done this year or, and stayed connected with people without it. So I'm, I'm really, it's, it's a vital importance, but the human, the human aspect of the human relationship of, of human to human uh, uh, and all, uh, all of that is fraught with is, is really necessary to come up with uh, something lasting that's awesome i am grateful for to zoom because it's really good to see you i, I love having the conversations like this I, I really do enjoy this well one thing i want to mention before we're for, before we're done is uh, and we hadn't talked about this but so uh i'm always a you know i'm a big neil young fan and uh i'm always a little unsure when people do cover songs of other right people. it's yeah. like uh you know i don't and you happened to pick, you know, one of his most iconic songs. And I, I just saw that you had done a version of Heart of Gold. And I thought, gee, I don't know about this. But I listened to it. And you deconstructed it to be really atmospheric and keyboard-based. And it really surprised me. It really sucked me in because you kept some of the hook line parts, but you you, they, you were done with keyboard, piano-based in your, in your overdubs. 
It's really cool. Anybody that hasn't heard that should check that out. Thanks, Dane. Uh, that's something I... Yeah. You mentioned that in the album, You Can Call Me Larry. It came right on the heels of that. There, there was a new okay. A&R guy that was put that album together, that Neil Young album together with various artists. And he kind of gave me license to do that. He said, do, do it as if you were doing your own song on You Can Call Me Larry. Do, do, do a version of it like that as if you've never heard the song. So, yeah, so actually, you're right. I did the opposite, though, in that I decided don't go near the acoustic guitar. <laughs> don't, right. even, don't even consider it because that is that is the key element to, to his delivery. So no for, that, for that one, I used the piano, but used that that pared down uh, way of, uh, of, uh, of performing. I, I'm glad you I'm glad you liked it because, yeah, I, I knew when they handed me that one, I thought, oh, don't. That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, I was looking at it going, okay, I'm yeah. going to check this out now. I'm not sure, but man, it's really beautiful. Oh, thank so, you very much. Good. Our listeners need to check that out. Hard to go. Larry has always done good covers. I mean, I'm I, even when he went into Walrus, have you guys seen him do I Am a Walrus with Sticks? I, yeah, I have. Yep, absolutely. That's a great example of just being, and also, that what's that Eurythmic song you went into? Oh, Sweet Dreams. Dreams, yeah. Mm-hmm. Your piano part for that is brilliant. Thanks. I, what he was referring to in, in this one is that in most stick shows, they give me the stage for a few minutes before we do Come Sail Away. And that usually is the, the uh, we call it the College of Rock Knowledge, where we basically, I'll play a little snippet of a song and the audience sings it back. It's, it's really, it's, 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 it's very simple, but it's kind of joyous. You know, people seem to really, you know, throw themselves into it and they get a chance to kind of sing some other tunes. And then, to cap it off with Come Sail Away is always a, a, a great moment. Man, thank you so much. This was awesome. We really appreciate the time. Great seeing you guys. You were fantastic seeing you out here. I'm, I'm so glad you guys are doing well. You know, I salute you. I salute you. See you later. Thank you. Stay well, guys. Stay in touch. Uh-huh. Cheers. See ya. Bye, Dave. Bye, Andy. Bye, Bye. Andy. Bye. Bye, darling.